0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and elevated. All the earth was full of his glory, and his train filled the temple. Words from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. And they're words of a contemplative used quite powerfully, in the introduction of a text written by St. Thomas Aquinas, reflecting upon the prologue to St. John's Gospel, which is our Gospel today. The words, of course, familiar to us, repeatedly at points during the time of Christmas, and of course, as a regular feature of the 11 o'clock High Mass, the Mass to At the end of the Mass, we have that second Gospel addressed symbolically to those who have not heard, in other words, to the heathen, which is why it's said at one side of the altar. But that's all by the way. The words are familiar, perhaps too familiar, because they might perhaps cause us not to dwell on the majestic significance of the Gospel as a whole, which is what energised St. Thomas in reflecting upon that prelude. For us, he quotes Augustine, While other evangelists tell us about the active life of Christ, John, in his gospel, raises our minds to the contemplative life. In the words of our text, John's contemplations described to the mind of Aquinas in three ways. He tells of things that are lofty and elevated, full, which is to say spacious, abounding in goodness, and perfect. The lofty things are described in the words, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and elevated, to take us back to Isaiah. The full and abounding things are suggested by the words, all the earth was full of his glory, and the perfect things in the words, and his train, all the things that are under him, which filled the temple. Concerning the first, we must bear in mind that the loftiness and sublimity of contemplation consists chiefly in the contemplation and knowledge of God. Lift up your eyes on high, and see who hath created these things. Hence, the eyes of a contemplative are lifted up on high when he sees and contemplates the very creator and supreme lord of all things. So, Thus, we can think of John's spiritual vision, very much a contemplative as he was, and we think of him in the island of Patmos. John's spiritual vision transcends the created order. He sees high above the mountains around him, pierces the heaven, and reaches even beyond the angels to the very throne of the maker and king of all things as Augustine put it. Hence he could say, I saw the Lord. Now St. John in his gospel adds, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory, namely Christ's, and spoke of him. Therefore the Lord sitting upon a throne high and elevated is, of course, Christ. John in his contemplation of the incarnate word shows forth a fourfold loftiness according to Aquinas or grandeur of power, when he says, I saw the Lord of eternity, when he says, sitting of dignity in nobility and nobility of nature, when he says, upon a high throne of incomprehensible truth, when he says, elevated. Echoing, of course, again, that recurring theme going back to Isaiah. By these four ways, too, Aquinas would argue, philosophers down the centuries have arrived at the knowledge of God, some, by God's power, came to know him, and this is the most efficacious, as he puts it where, for we see things in nature acting with an intelligent purpose, and achieving finite, definite, useful ends. Since these things have no intellect, they could not act in so enlightened a way, unless the things we see in the world were moved and guided by some directing mind. Others came to the knowledge of God by means of his eternity. They saw that everything in nature is changeable, that the more noble a thing is, the less it has of changeability. For instance, the inferior bodies are changeable both in substance and according to place. The heavenly bodies, very much a medieval view here, which are nobler, are unchangeable in their substance and only move according to place. Hence, we can gather from this that the first and supreme principle and the noblest of all things must be immovable and eternal, namely God himself. And again, thirdly, some have arrived at the knowledge of God from the dignity of God himself. And these were the Platonists, of whom there have been quite a number represented in the ranks of Anglicans, I may say, over the centuries. For they considered that whatever is by participation is, and is reduced to that which is essentially so. For instance, and again, this is a very medieval illustration, echoes going back to Aristotle, all fiery or burning things which are fiery by participation are reduced to fire, which is fiery, by its very essence. Since therefore all things that are participate in being and are beings by participation, it follows that there must be something at the summit of all things, which is being by its very essence, in other words, God, who is the most sufficient, the most worthy, and most perfect cause of all being, from whom all things that are participate in being. And fourthly, We come into the knowledge of God, Aquinas suggests, by means of the incomprehensibility of his truth. For all truth which our intellect can grasp is finite, because according as St. Augustine would put it, everything that is is known and is known as limited by the understanding of the knower, a point perhaps with which the present century is overly impressed, and it is, if limited, determined and particularized, and therefore it is necessary that the first and supreme truth which is above every intellect, should be incomprehensible, infinite, and that, of course, must be God. So, Aquinas is able to argue that he sees all of this implicit in the grandeur of the vision articulated with such economy by St. John in the prologue. John's contemplation is thus, as indeed he suggests, full, lofty, and perfect. And it must be noted that the different sciences, he then goes on to say, in different ways divide up among themselves these three modes of contemplation, the full, the lofty, and the perfect. Moral science is the perfection of contemplation because it concerns the ultimate end. Natural science, which considers those things that come forth from God, has the fullness of contemplation in a different way. And among the physical sciences, he suggests, the height of contemplation is reached by nothing less than metaphysical science. That which comes before science, metaphysica, But St. John's Gospel contains wholly and altogether what these aforesaid sciences have separately and therefore is most perfect, Aquinas argues in his little introduction. While the other evangelists treat chiefly of the mysteries of Christ's humanity, John, above all, penetrates into his divinity without, however, putting aside the mysteries of his humanity. He tells us in the first part of the Lord sitting upon a throne high and elevated when he says, in the beginning was the word. Secondly, he shows us how all the earth was full of his glory when he says all things were made through him. And thirdly, he shows how his train, all things that were under him again, going back to that imagery in Isaiah, fill the temple when he says the word was made flesh. Thus, the aim of the gospel is nothing less, more short than that the faithful should become the temple of God and be filled with God's glory. Wherefore, John himself says, these things are written that you may be Christ, the son of God, hence the knowledge of the divinity of the word. All of which frames immediately what we have in this gospel in a very insightful way in terms of the depth of the philosophical vision underpinning the theological vision it sets out with such breathtaking economy and majesty when it is so sweeping in its scope of everything from the creation. But I also want to touch briefly on another feast which we sometimes neglect, which has just fallen upon us, namely the feast of the holy Innocents. When we remember as martyrs all those children, firstborn children, murdered on the command of King Herod, who feared the news of the birth of a potential rival king as conveyed to him, with excessive candor, perhaps, by those mysterious Gentiles from the East, known to us as the wise men, of whom we shall be thinking again shortly as the year unfolds. The biblical basis for this particular feast is Matthew 2.16, where it states that Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, remember they didn't go back to tell him where the Christ was, became furious and sent and ordered that... Because all the male children be killed in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time which he had ascertained from the wise male. Now this horrifying episode prompts a profound question which comes to us in the recognition of the fact that the children could not by definition at that point be considered Christian. So how do the holy innocents come to be deservedly called saints and martyrs? And there's something very interesting here, which does take us through from this point through to the wise men. These are stories that come down to us of those brought into the life of Christ who were not themselves Christian. And that merits a great deal of further thought, because the wise men come into the story and they make their exit. And we know not much further of them from the Bible, a lot more from tradition, but that's another matter. And here we have, as I say, the holy innocents, martyrs by tradition, seen as witnesses, certainly. But they were not voluntary witnesses. They went to their deaths for the sake of Christ, of whom, as indeed Herod made clear, they knew nothing, though he did, and he had them killed. So we cannot in one sense think of them as Christian at that point. It seems wrong. And yet, is that point so easily resolved? Well, Jesus speaks of his own death, let us recall, as a kind of baptism, saying during his public ministry, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am constrained until it is accomplished. Luke 12.50. Now, the early Christian church picked up on that point. Though insisting that baptism is necessary for salvation, we have figures such as St. Cyprian who were arguing very clearly that they certainly are not deprived of the sacrament of baptism who are baptized with the most glorious and greatest baptism, namely the baptism of blood. And this mattered a very great deal in the early church, because, of course, that was a time of frequent persecutions. And amidst those persecutions, there were many who professed Christ, but did not have the chance to be baptized before they were executed. And indeed, Tertullian develops the imagery involved in the blood and water flowing from the pierced side of Christ, which we remember from the Gospels as symbolic of the two baptisms, as he put it, which Jesus gives us in order that they who believed in his blood might be bathed with water. They who had been bathed in water might likewise drink the blood. He views this as thus a second font of martyrdom, as the baptism which both stands in lieu of the fontal bathing when that has not been received and and restores yet what would otherwise be lost. All of which makes clear that the early church did not view martyrdom as an exception to the need to be baptized, rather they viewed it as an implicit action of baptism by blood instead of water. And by that criterion, it can be seen quite readily how the holy innocents who died on behalf of Christ, in a rather literal sense, on account of Herod's hope that by killing all of the age demographic, as we would say, in which Christ at that point as an infant fell, would be among them the Messiah himself. So the link of their sacrifice to Christ is direct, and they would even in a real sense be said could be said, therefore, to have died in Jesus' place. Accordingly, how could they not be assured, we may say, of their salvation, since Jesus promised that whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it, Luke 9, 34. So when we find then in St. Irenaeus reflecting on this very early, around 180, he was able to say that God suddenly removed those children belonging to the house of David whose happy lot it was to have been born at that time, a very ironic way of putting it, that he might send them on before into his kingdom. He, since he was himself an infant, so arranging it that human infants could be martyrs also, according to the scriptures for the sake of Christ, who was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the city of David. We may find some of that strange, but nonetheless, there is an important point being made here. And it's further to one made by St. Matthew, who presents the death of these children not simply as a horrible horrific action nor indeed as a tragic one since of course from a Christian perspective it was certainly not tragic but rather a fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So that means we can say these infants became martyrs in a unique way since their death helps to prove that the child Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That, at least, was the perspective of the early church and St Irenaeus in particular. Though we may be inclined, I think, to wonder, well, what does that say about that liberty? They were involuntarily offered in that way. That's an interesting question. So there are biblical reasons, however, for understanding the holy innocence as we see as martyrs in the sense, quite clearly, whatever we make of some other aspects, of being witnesses. Their deaths tell us something about Jesus Christ and his importance. However, it was horribly misconstrued by Herod. And Saint Cyprian, writing, let us recall, in the middle of the third century, describes the holy Innocents not only as martyrs, but as a sort of prototype for all martyrs. This is where things become, if anything, even more interesting. How could he say that? Well, all of this makes a deep point about the Christian concept of martyrdom, which stands in sharp distinction from that which is very powerful in some other traditions. One among them would be Islam, which has a quite different approach here. And there are several points to note here in regard to the Christian tradition. None of us is free from the peril of persecution, the sad story of these early martyrdoms tells us, as indeed do all martyrdoms. Even those at the time of Christ who'd done clearly nothing wrong were nonetheless engulfed. By their death, the holy innocent, secondly, also teach us something of the ruthlessness of those who were threatened by Christ and threatened thus in exchange in an attempt to head off the great boon that was coming to us, as represented in Herod's response. And thirdly, they remind us that we as Christians are very much not promised an easy life, as followers of Christ in this world. Even innocent children, if they could be thus made to suffer such a fate by the opponents of Christ, if that could happen to them, why should we expect a life of ease ourselves? And that is certainly not what Christ promised to his followers. But Cyprian also highlights yet another deep truth here about the specifically Christian understanding of martyrdom. For we may be tempted to think of martyrdom as a kind of good work, a good thing a martyr does for the cause of Christ as testimony to their faith. But the early church warned repeatedly against that. Hence, for example, in the martyrdom of Polycarp, written within the year of Polycarp's death, again mid-second century, we find a contrast between St. Polycarp's martyrdom with the failed martyrdom of one Quintus who was said to have forced himself and some others to come forward voluntarily to trial in an attempt to be martyred, only to end up apostatizing and offering sacrifice to pagan gods later. The key point there, though, was that martyrdom was not something to be sought. It was a grace conferred. If need be, a grace thus we receive from Christ. And that is worth dwelling upon, as it may not be as easy a point to recognize as we would think As Cyprian says, the cause of perishing is to perish for Christ. That witness who proves martyrs and crowns them suffices for a testimony of his martyrdom. So it is not the holy innocents who make themselves martyrs. It is ultimately Christ who makes them saints and martyrs. Just as Christ makes saints in the formal sense that anyone without sin is living the life of a saint while in a state of grace, Babies are made saints regularly in that sense, as indeed adults, by the act of baptism every day. So here we can see how it is possible to say, in this extraordinary story of the innocence, that he gave the holy innocents the grace of becoming saints and martyrs through the baptism of blood. So that, in the words of one commentator, those who knew nothing of the life and received no wound except that wound which gave them entry into the kingdom of heaven, were enabled so to do. And that brings us to the point which I need to bring out here, which is that in the Christian tradition, martyrdom is never embraced. It is conferred. And thus, we can say in the words, perhaps, of Prudentius in a particularly striking poem of his, Salveti Floris Martyrum," which in the English translation would read, O tender flock, you are the first of offerings to Christ before his altar, innocent, with palms and crowns, you play. Poignant indeed, complicated indeed, but in that sense worthy of the richness of the tradition, of the majesty of Christ unveiled, and so economically set forth for us in the prologue with which I began, and which is the gospel for us today, from the gospel of St. John. Amen.